Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. We don't talk about religion very much, especially when we're talking about public schools, but it's a big deal in the lives of many Americans. More than half of Americans say they pray every day, and 90% of Americans say they believe in God. So when it comes to schools, it seems like it's a reasonable question to ask, does religion make a difference to student outcomes? I mean, does it impact grades or college attendance? And if so, for who? When Alana Horwitz, who's now an assistant professor of Jewish studies and sociology at Tulane, first became interested in these questions, she found few answers. So Alana set out to find some. And her recent book, God, Grades, and Graduation, is the result. It explores how religion shapes the lives of teenagers and how it affects educational outcomes. One reason I think God, Grades, and Graduation is so interesting is that education policy focuses so much on schools. But Alana's book shows that much of what might make or break an education depends on factors outside of school. And she raises a lot of interesting questions about how religion plays into those factors. So I asked her to come on to the podcast to talk about it. Alana, welcome to the report card. Thanks for having me. So Alana, just to start out, how does a professor of Jewish studies and sociology living in Palo Alto, not necessarily the Bible Belt, come to study academic outcomes of religious Christian teenagers? Yes, it is a great question. I think one that many people have. So I was in my third year of graduate school at Stanford, and I had come to Stanford with a specific interest in actually Jewish education. I had been researching why families drop out of Hebrew school and things like that. And It was my third year, and the Pew Research Center had come out with its 2014 Religious Landscape Study. And the leading headline at the time was that there was a decline of religion in America. And I opened up the study, and actually what stuck out to me was not the decline of religion in America, but was how religious America still was. I was really surprised about this, and I thought that America had you know, long secularized. And I didn't really know that many people who were really strong, committed Christians. Um, I had sort of grown up on primarily the coasts, had gone to colleges on the coast, and it just wasn't in my world um, to sort of think about the religiosity of America. And so I stood there or I sat there with this um, study from Pew and I said, okay, how can I be a good scholar of American Jews if I actually don't even understand religion in America? So I decided to step back and think about this question. Um, And I also started to realize that in my classes at Stanford and in the Graduate School of Education, I was thinking a lot about the role of race and class and gender and how those factors influence academic success. I did not think at all about how religion might influence academic success. And I said, okay, wait a minute. If religion is so prevalent in America, right? If at least like a quarter of Americans are still organizing their lives around religion, might it be the case that it actually influences how kids do in school, even despite the separation of church and state? And so with those kinds of questions, I went to my advisor and I said, I know you brought me here to study Jews, but how do you feel about me writing a dissertation about conservative Christians? Luckily, he was very open-minded, and this is the book that came as a result of that. So it's really interesting that you bring that up, right? There are sort of coin of the realm issues in education policy, and you hit on them, right? Poverty is one. Another one is race, gender issues. 
those are things that we hear about all the time. But this is a major issue in a lot of people's lives. In some sense, the, the, I, I think it may be an open question about how formative those things actually are with everyone who might identify with a religious group. But it isn't something that is one of the common factors along which we talked, which is just what you've said. So my first question here is, how has that been received? Because I could see that sort of folks who are used to talking along certain lines might say, yeah, we don't really talk about religion. So have you found some folks dismissive of your work or has this been fertile ground? It's really interesting. I expected a lot of pushback. And actually, I am—I haven't gotten nearly as much hate mail as I expected. <laughs> I have been surprised at how many emails actually I have gotten saying, wow, thank you for taking the study of religion seriously, which not a lot of academics um, in the social sciences are willing to do. Um, several emails from religious women saying, wow, your findings about undermatching, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit, um, really resonate with my own lived experience. So actually, a lot of people have been very grateful that I've been open-minded enough to take religion seriously, as especially as somebody who has no vested interest in conservative Christians whatsoever, right? I have no skin in this game. Um so, so it's been good. I mean, certainly I've also gotten some nasty emails. And I know when I had the New York Times op-ed published, there was a slew of comments in that that, you know, I wasn't surprised about. But overall, it's been actually, I think, very positive And as you said, I think fertile ground. So you brought this up. I think that it's important to establish, you know, do you have skin in this game, right? Because if this came from sort of, I don't know, a professor at Liberty University. Well, you might say, well, this is sort of motivated reasoning and and so forth. So give us a thumbnail of your background and how close was your background to the sort of American Bible belts of, of, of Christian culture? It's about as far from it as you could get. So I actually grew up in Russia as a Jew under communism. So that meant that you couldn't practice Judaism. And so I lived in Russia with my family until I was seven. We came over to the United States in late 1988 as political refugees. Um, I did not even know what the word Jewish meant. Uh, my family really didn't do much, but they knew that being Jewish was important. It was on our passports. We ate some matzo on Passover, and that was about the extent. Once we came to um, the United States, we settled in Philadelphia. I started going to Jewish schools, and what that meant for my life was that I was in a very Jewish pluralistic environment. The kinds of schools that I went to had kids who were Reformed Jews, conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews. And so my family wasn't religious. In fact, it was me coming home and saying like, mom, I learned what it means to keep kosher. And like, did you know we're supposed to light the candles on you know Shabbat on Friday night? And like, do you know that when people die, we're supposed to observe these rituals around sitting Shiva? My family really didn't know anything. And because my sort of social world was filled with Jews across the religiosity spectrum, I could see the different ways in which religion played into people's lives. And I think that gave me a very, um, like a great amount of empathy for, for what belief in God or even religious practice could look like, even if it wasn't something that was relevant um, or essential in my own life. And so I say in the book, in the first page, that as I was writing this book, 
I feel very um, agnostic about God, but I am involved in Jewish life. My kids go to a Jewish school. We do belong to a synagogue. I am a Jewish studies professor. So I don't have any personal stake in conservative Christianity. I do think religious institutions, particularly as social institutions, have something to offer for a particular set of people. But no, I don't have any any ties that, and I didn't really care the way in which uh, way the card sort of fell in terms of the story about conservative Christians. In fact, at one point, I had reverse coded my data, and I thought that conservative Christians were doing very badly in terms of their grades. And I had this whole story in my head that made sense about how, oh, well, like in the Bible Belt, academic performance is generally very low. It must be because they are religious. And and I sort of pursued this. And then I was like, oh, wait, my data are reverse coded. So, you know, either way. <laughs> Always watch the reverse coding. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into this. I think one of the terms in your book that is a really interesting place to start is one that most people aren't familiar with. And that use this term abiders. What do you mean by an abider? Yeah. So I use the word abider to specifically describe the teenagers in my study who grow up with these intense conservative Christian commitments. And they represent about a quarter of the sample. I'm sure we'll talk about methods in a bit. Um, But I use the word abiders because these are the kinds of kids who are really conforming and accepting their religious commitments. They are opting into them and they are abiding by it in all forms of their life. Um, And as I talk about in the book, they don't just abide by religion in home, but also uh, in their religious settings, and they bring those dispositions into the school domain. And the idea of being an abider means that they are very sort of conscientious and cooperative kids who abide also by school rules, which end up being very complementary or very similar to the religious rules. Yeah, so I think this is an interesting distinction here because you, you know a lot of people will get their understandings of religious patterns from poll results. But a poll result isn't necessarily capturing abiders. In fact, it it will probably capture abiders as identifying as Christians or evangelicals, but it'll capture a whole bunch of other folks as well. And so your book really kind of focuses on these abiders and on students whose lives are shot through with these beliefs and where they they really hold sway over their behaviors. Am Am I capturing this correctly? That's right. And so people might be wondering, how did I identify them? And there was a survey element to this. So let me just explain how I identified who is an abider. In the, I, I used the National, uh, uh, National Study of Youth and Religion, the NSYR, which was a survey of about 3,300 teenagers, a longitudinal survey. And so the first time that the, the kids were surveyed, they were teenagers, they were 13 to 17 years old, and they were asked a bunch of questions about their lives, including a bunch of questions about their religious beliefs, behaviors, um, attitudes. And I draw on a latent class analysis, which basically grouped kids based on their types of religious engagement. And there was a set of kids who abide by religion in a very sort of classic institutional sense. These were the kinds of kids who say they uh, believe in God um, strongly, who feel really close to God, who attend religious services on a regular basis, who pray on a regular basis. This is a, um, a type of kid who scores very high on traditional Christian-centric or Protestant-centric um, measures of uh, religiosity. 
And so they do look very religious on surveys. And then I wondered, okay, so I have these kids who look religious on surveys. What do they sound like in interviews? Because it's very easy, right? We're always concerned about social desirability bias in surveys. And so the NSYR has an interview component. So a big part of my work was reading the interviews of these teenagers over the course of 10 years. And as I read the interviews with abiders and compared them with non-abiders, they looked distinctly different. Like it's easy to sort of fake being religious on a survey. It's harder to fake being authentically religious in a two-hour interview with a human. And the ways in which they talked about religion deeply influencing their lives, the stories that they told gave me confidence in this in this survey category that these kids weren't just um, looking like religious on surveys, but they actually were infusing religion into their life through the interview data. So let me put some meat on these bones with a quote in the book. And this is from Brittany. All right. So I'll read the quote and then maybe you can help us unpack this sort of identification. Brittany says, uh, my purpose is to serve God and to try to show him to other people and also just to love people because the people that are all left when everyone else is gone, they're a mortal soul. I think that I'm here to take care of people in some way. I think that I could help anyone just to make people smile, to make their lives a little bit easier. And I think I'm going to be a teacher, something like that, but it doesn't really matter. So how does that quote sort of embody the abider category? Yeah. So one thing is like the interviewer for that particular question didn't ask her, if I recall correctly, about um, her particular religious views. I think the question stem was about like, tell me about, you know, what you see as your life purpose, which could be answered in lots of different ways, right? My life purpose could be to be a musician or to be an athlete. And the fact that she gave this robust answer about religion um, and sort of serving God demonstrates to me, right, that she's not just going to services and praying, that she actually sees her life purpose as wrapped up in this very religious mission and that she is abiding by very sort of traditional notions of Christianity. So I will admit that to the average listener, Brittany's response might sound a little strange, not like your average teenager, right? So Give us a sense, and and I'll get into the the study data in just a minute for the full piece, but is this a real small niche group, these abiders, or is this a larger group of American students than one might guess? You know, the data suggests that they represent about a quarter of American teenagers across the racial and class uh, spectrum. So I don't think it's this like tiny niche group of people who are just living in the Bible Belt. I think the people who I talk about in my book live in all sorts of places. They do live in urban communities and they live in the suburbs and they live in rural communities and they are geographically very dispersed. And I agree with you. I, as somebody who had not had a lot of interaction with conservative Christians, was surprised about how many teenagers volitionally talked about religion infusing their lives, right? Kids who said, you know, when they're asked, like, tell me about your upbringing. And they, and this kid says, I was raised to be a pretty good person. I was raised on the Bible, right? You don't have to add that Bible piece uh, if it doesn't necessarily mean something to you. But kids shared voluntarily stories about spending their free time, you know, playing a game with their friends, like who knows who, more Bible verses or um, stories like that you don't really hear from typical teenagers. So yeah, I think there are just more of them than we actually 
think there are because we don't interact with them on a regular basis. So one of the other concepts that you introduce in your book is religious restraint. Can you explain what that is and why does it matter? So as a sociologist of education, I um, approach this book thinking a lot about what we know about the role of social class and why kids growing up in families from different um, socioeconomic backgrounds fare very differently. And so I have been very influenced by the work of uh, Annette LaRoe and Jessica Clarko. Um, and Annette LaRoe had written a very seminal book in the late 80s and then another one later on about um, the different kind of child rearing styles that sort of middle upper class parents adopt compared to more poor and working class families. And what Annette LaRoe had argued at the time was that parents who work in professional class jobs teach their children the kinds of skills and dispositions that they use in the workplace and that those skills and dispositions, which include things like advocating for yourself, translate into the school domain because teachers reward those kinds of dispositions. And Annette LaRoe says, right, that the job, um, at the time she was writing, it was mostly the father's job, but that the job um, has a long reach. And what she means by that is that it reaches outside of the, the home domain into the school domain. And when I thought about how religious upbringing might influence kids in, in schools, it was in the same way. Like I wondered if religion seeps through the public school door because it influences the kinds of dispositions, the kinds of habits and mindsets that kids learn at home. So when I was rereading Annette LaRoe's work, I realized that religion didn't factor into her two class-based child-rearing styles. She had concerted cultivation and natural growth. And I said, and one of the kids in her book you know, talked a lot about God and going to church. And Annette LaRoe didn't sort of bring this into her work. And I wondered, I wonder if his family's religious life matters. And so the religious restraint is my um, attempt to provide a third kind of child rearing style that cuts across class lines and accounts for the way in which religious upbringing influences kids, the kinds of dispositions that they learn. In the book, I talk about this upbringing of religious restraint as something that is constantly reinforced through a child's social environment. It starts with the family. Uh, in these kinds of homes where, where, where children experience this logic of religious restraint, parents follow a very regimented approach to child rearing. Those homes are marked by a strong sense of order. There's a lot of prioritization of family time. Kids learn to follow the rules. They learn to obey their parents, to be kind. And those dispositions translate into the school environment because teachers value those kinds of dispositions as well. So let me see if I can repeat back what I've heard here, because I think it's it's quite compelling. You could have sort of like a secular view on parents' upbringing and so forth. And you could say, well, you know, social class sort of determines a lot about parenting. But if you ignore a religious component for folks across social classes that may have religious commitments that shape not only their actions, but their parenting, and that makes a lot of sense to me, by the way, then you're probably missing a major factor in what shapes kids' lives. And if you call this religious restraint or the, the way these religious factors may influence students, then you can capture a pretty important part of the trajectory of a large portion of students in America. Is that right? 
That's right. Yeah. And let me give you an example of how this view of religious restraint might change our perception of, of childbearing. So there's a, a woman I talk about in the book. Her name is Gina. Uh, and Gina grows up with a, a parent who's her mom is a school superintendent and her father is in the Virginia uh, House of Delegates. He has some sort of political position. And on paper, she is a middle upper class kid, right? Her parents have high levels of education, high incomes, and very prestigious positions. And so you would expect, if you just take a class-based approach to thinking about her educational outcomes, that she would do very well in school and that she would go on to probably a selective college. However, if you look at her through the lens of religion, you actually learn that Gina's family is very religious. They're uh, evangelicals and that they spend and that Gina talks about spending a lot of her childhood praying, spending time with her grandparents, going to church. And she tells this story. Um, she says, you know, I, um, I have wanted to be a missionary, actually, my entire life. I remember being 10 years old and being in church and passing a note to my grandmother saying, Grandma, when I grow up, I want to be a missionary. And actually, when it comes time for Gina to make a choice about college, she does not aim to go to a selective school, as we might predict based on her class status. Actually, she says, I intentionally bombed the SATs because I didn't want to get into any good school so that I could go on to be a missionary. And nobody would sort of make a fuss about it. And that's exactly what she does. She goes on to uh, work for two years overseas. She comes back and then she goes to, um, I think, community college and has a very different life than we would expect just based on her socioeconomic status. That's fascinating. So let's get a little bit into the the data behind all this work. You have survey data and also interviews. So give us a, a thumbnail of where you draw data from to uh, inform the work in the book. Yeah. So my primary data is this National Study of Youth and Religion, which was uh, conducted out of Notre Dame, uh, Chris Smith was the lead PI. He um, and his team of collaborators started following a nationally representative group of teenagers in 2003, and they followed them for 10 years when they were in their mid to late 20s. And they also interviewed about 220 of them over this 10-year period. Uh, these were in-person, in-depth interviews. Uh, they also surveyed parents in the first wave. So from those two pieces, what we get is the survey data give me this nationally representative picture of how does this religious upbringing play out in terms of three specific academic outcomes, grades during the middle high school years, their likelihood of graduating from college with a bachelor's degree, and then school selectivity. And the way that I get at the school selectivity measure, because some of your audience might be wondering now, well, there's attrition when you do longitudinal data. You can't really measure actually BA attainment or school selectivity because the kinds of kids who end up falling out of longitudinal studies tend to be underrepresented minorities. So to resolve that problem, I matched my data with the National Student Clearinghouse, which houses the data for about 95% of Americans who enter into different higher education institutions. And I did that data match three years after the NSYR was done intentionally in 2016. I did that because by then the respondents would have been in their late 20s, early 30s, at which point they would have most likely already finished college if they had planned to. So this, um, this data matching helps me overcome a lot of problems in longitudinal data. The survey and the interview component give me both 
this nationally representative survey view where I can determine statistically significant differences, but also really understand the black box of what's happening by diving into the narratives of these teenagers and seeing how their lives actually unfold over time. Um, because, right, we know lots of people have aspirations to complete college, but then things get in the way. And I'm able to see actually what kinds of um, what kinds of paths they take they take through higher education. So you've got nationally representative data, you've got some breadth, and you've got some depth. Let's talk a little bit about findings. Top line, Ilana, is it accurate to say that abiders just do better in school? Well, they do better on the specific measure of schooling, which is grades and bachelor's degree attainment. Now, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily learning more. It doesn't mean that they're that we're developing any sort of curiosity or critical thinking because grades are a particular kind of measure that has a subjective nature to it, where if you are a teacher who has 30 rambunctious teenagers or 30 rambunctious you know, kindergartners, you love kids who are really good at sitting still and doing what you ask. So yes, they're doing a better in school, but it is on this particular kind of measure. And we should be asking ourselves as policymakers about not just like what is religion doing, but what our schools are also rewarding. Right. And so you're saying that it's not some absolute benefit um, that we can look at and just say, yes, they do better. But certainly it aligns with these children tend to be more conscientious. They're better able to navigate these institutions. And those show up as differences in grades in middle high school and also in BA attainment. That's right. So one of the reasons, the reason that they end up having higher BA attainment is because your grades in the middle and high school years especially are the strongest predictor of whether you are actually going to get into college and then whether you are going to complete college. So the abider advantage that these kids see in the middle high school years translates into, into the college education. But let's think like, let's move backwards in time to think about what these intensely religious kids, what these abiders look like when they're coming into kindergarten. Sociologists of education have documented um, how a lot of the schooling that we have, you have to understand the hidden curriculum, right? It's not the overt curriculum of like, here's what you're going to learn in math and here's what you're going to learn in science, but it's the hidden curriculum. It's the rules, the routines, the regulations, right? The three R's. And if you are a kid who has grown up in this abider home with this religious restraint upbringing, you have already mastered how to follow the rules, how to be self-disciplined, how to stand in line, how to be respectful of your teachers. And so learning that hidden curriculum of schooling isn't so foreign to you. And so early on, you say to yourself, oh, I got this. This isn't so different. There is something about our schools that is particularly uh, conducive to the kinds of dispositions that conservative Christian kids learn. So you're right. It's not this like absolute religion is good for you. Everybody should be religious. There's something about the way we've developed our schools that makes religion sticky in that particular environment and useful in that environment. So I'm not going to reduce everything to test scores, but you know, I'm an ed researcher, so I'm going to ask about test scores. We see higher grades, we see higher BA attainment, and a lot of times we would say, well, we probably see higher test scores. Uh, do you have test score data? Do you notice differences and why? I do not have test score data and I have yet to find any sort of study. And if there's anything out there, please contact me that has both a religiosity measure and test score data. My hypothesis would be that there would be no difference in test scores. 
In fact, what I we didn't mention when I talked about the different data um, that I collect, I use a second data set as well to test some of my findings. It's the Ad Health data. The full name is the National Study from Adolescent to Adult Health. I use that because it has a really unique sibling component that helps me understand what happens when we control for um, family level factors by doing sibling fixed effects. We can talk about that if uh, if you want, but. The measure that is in there is the Peabody test. And so that is a measure of, I think, um, verbal intelligence when kids are young. And so the religious kids, the intensely religious kids in ad health do not seem any more sort of verbally adept than, than the less religious kids. So I don't think on any sort of test performance, they actually look different. It really comes down to these conscientious and cooperative um, dispositions. So talk to me about how social capital plays into this. Uh, you, you talk about this in the book, and it seems like it, it's a big factor that needs to be drawn out. Yeah, absolutely. One of the central findings of my book is that the religion matters differently for kids coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And the reason for that is because what religion offers, and the specific thing is that religion is especially helpful to kids from working class and middle class backgrounds. The reason is because religious institutions and the things that kids get from being religious, middle upper class kids or kids from the professional world, they can get them elsewhere. And here, this is where this idea of social capital comes in, right? Social capital refers broadly to this networks of adults and of trust and reciprocity that you develop from re uh, relationships that you have. For kids growing up in professional class families, you have a lot of social capital. That comes from the jobs where your parents work. It comes from your parents' own college networks. And it comes from other social institutions in which you are embedded. Unfortunately, kids growing up who are not affluent in America today do not have a lot of access to social capital in their communities or in their families. What religion offers them is that social capital, and it matters for them in terms of how they do academically. Basically, Religious institutions are this last form of free source of social capital that gives access to, to kids who don't have it elsewhere. And you would see this coming out for kids who are abiders in a different way than you would for kids who are, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of nominally Christian or, you know, they, they identify as Christian and they they go to church on on Easter and Christmas and and but that wouldn't come with the social capital. Whereas if you are rooted in these institutions and you know the people there and are engaged on the long term, you're more likely to have benefits of, of that social capital that actually flourishes in some notable way down the line. Right. Because there's a dimension of belief and of belonging that confers this abider advantage. And so regardless of class, Everybody, all abiders benefit from this, from believing, because if you believe that God is watching what you do, you're going to be and evaluating what you do in this life or the afterlife, you're going to be more likely to behave in a way that you think is pleasing to God. But that belonging piece really matters for kids from non-affluent homes, because by belonging to a religious community and by going on a regular basis, you develop relationships with adults in the community that could be ministers, pastors, youth group leaders, parents of other kids in the religious community who end up essentially providing additional oversight over your life 
We know that in working class communities, for example, where parents are working multiple jobs, right, and kids often are finding themselves out on the street with not a lot of sort of productive um, activities, and when they feel a sense of emotional and um, cognitive despair, they turn to acts of physical despair, which includes crime, drinking, drugs. When you are in this web of support from your religious institution, you're less likely to engage in those behaviors because you're worried that someone is going to see you. And it's possible that people will see you and report back. So there's this additional sort of um, non-parental oversight that happens when you are embedded in a religious institution on a regular basis, not just going like on Christmas and Easter, right? You have to be going on a regular basis for you to sort of be known by other people and for you to know other people. And, and I may be betraying some of my own experiences here, but there's one other thing about religious institutions is that they span timelines that school communities wouldn't. For instance, most kids don't go to one school for their K to 12 career, but they may go to the same church for 12 years. So if you have these influences coming from an institution that you're not just engaged with for a year or several years, but as long as I can remember, then the effect of those durable relationships are probably going to be much more uh, noticeable than other institutions that non-religious folks would be more commonly associated with. Is that unfair? That's fair. Churches keep families rooted to a place. And one of the things that's very hard and prevalent for non-affluent youth, they move around a lot. And one or two moves is okay. But once you experience instability, geographic instability on a regular basis, it could be very detrimental. But you are right. Churches keep families rooted to a place because when families are in a bind or when they are you know, needing maybe like $100 to help pay their electricity bill or somebody to watch their kid, they go to their religious institutions and it helps, helps them sort of find that social support that they can't get elsewhere. And it prevents them from potentially having to move as often. So I also want to get to undermatch here because you, you, you have this nice long view with the student clearinghouse data. And for those who don't know, that's just tracking of students through college. So you can figure out who went to college and, and where in terms of selectivity, where more selective colleges are harder to get into and you know reflect higher uh, potential lifetime outcomes by, by some measures. So, but then we're talking about undermatching. So explain what undermatching is and why it matters for this group of kids. Yeah. Undermatching is basically the idea that you end up in a college that is less selective than we would predict based on your performance in middle and high school, particularly in high school. And we've known about the undermatching phenomenon as something that happens a lot to low-income kids. There's a great book called Top Student, Top School that talks about how valedictorians who are low-income end up, you know, if you're a valedictorian, you'd expect like, oh, you go to, the, you know, an elite prestigious school. But for kids who are low-income, lead very interdependent lives, can't leave to go far away uh, because they have to stay and help take care of their families. They end up undermatching in the college selection process. What my book shows is that undermatching is not just a class-based phenomenon, but also a religious-based phenomenon. What I mean by that is I find that this is especially the case for professional class kids because almost all of them would have gone to college anyways. And it is especially prevalent for women, although I do see it amongst men, where they end up choosing colleges that are less selective than we would expect. These are kids who had, in high school, they were in the honor society. They had straight A's. 
Um, they had extracurriculars. They were often volunteering. And then they end up choosing to go to a school that is not particularly selective. It's often that it's very close to home. And the reason for that is because for these kids, these abiders, they end up having a self-concept, a notion of themselves where they prioritize parenthood, altruism, and service to God. For that, for them to have self-concept congruence and to actually have those aspects of their life play out, they don't need to go to a selective college because they don't necessarily need to go to graduate school. The idea of having a prestigious career isn't very important to them. And so they don't need to say to themselves like, oh, well, I want to be a, a doctor. And so for that, I need to go to medical school. For that, I need to go to Stanford. And for that, blah, 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 blah. Right? They have a very different way of of figuring out what is central to them. And so they end up staying close to home. They also really, they prefer social homogeneity. They are, they are not kids who are open to new experiences. They are not the kinds of kids who are saying, I can't wait to go to college and get away from my family and neighborhood and sort of try new things. These are kids who are pretty risk averse and staying close to home is, um, keeps them in that comfort zone. So I, I could see two ways that this could play out. And I, I wonder if you can, if it's just one thing you can't disentangle or, or maybe you can discount one. So one of these might be, well, family is very important to me. I'm rooted to a community, so I don't want to move to Alabama. Sorry, Alabamans, if, if, I'm, if I'm living in the Northeast. But another one could be, well, these are abiders. They're religious kids, so they go to religious colleges. And most religious colleges just are not in this selective group. Can we separate those two things? Or is there just too much noise to identify which one of those things affects this undermatch? Yeah, I didn't have enough power to really disentangle that. I see in the interview data both of those things happening. Some going to religious colleges and some just staying close to home because they want to stay close to their family. But there is a bit of noise. All right, Alana, we're going to try a new section now. Okay. We have not done this before. You are an arguable member. We're going to do this great it section. And this segment is very simple. I'm going to name something and I want you to grade it on a scale from A to F. None of this E business as far as grades go. Are you game for this? I'm game. Uh, all right, let's start off with education in the Soviet Union or Russia. I don't even know where to start with that. Um, what time period are we talking about? Let, let's go to when you were rooted there in, in your early childhood. So I never actually went to school, but based on what my mom says, I'd give it an A. Uh, it sounds like people were um, learned a ton of poetry and great literature and can converse about a ton of different subjects and they knew math and science. So I don't know. I, it seemed like it was going well, although that is a very un, uncritical and unsophisticated view. Fair enough. Uh, Palo Alto. Ooh, I give it um, a B minus. And I say that because the pressure of Palo Alto and the pressure to succeed is so incredibly high that the mental health of students is at an all-time, um, the mental health crisis, I think, is at an all-time peak. I think suicide rates in Palo Alto when we were there were incredibly high. And I, I think we need to find a better way to, you know, both teach kids, uh, expect high things from them without making them feel so incredibly stressed out that they feel like they have to, you know, go to the train tracks. All right. Summer camp. And I don't mean like the summer camp where you send your kid for the day. I mean, like I went for two weeks for summer camp. A plus. I think summer camp 
is one of the best things anybody could do for their children. I'm, uh, you know, a bit biased. I'm sending my own kid to four weeks of summer camp. And I also was a summer camp kid. Summer camps are amazing because it teaches kids to be self-sufficient and outside of their parents' purview. Right now, I think we are at, and it gets them away from technology. No technology for several weeks at a time. They actually have to talk with their peers and figure problems out. And when they're bored, they have to find something to, to do that's not on devices. It's unbelievable. Um, it also is very good for parents' mental well-being. Now, camps are very prohibitively expensive, so we need to find ways to make them affordable to people. But right now in our society, I think uh, kids have very low resiliency skills, aren't really able to do things for themselves. Camp is a great solution. The Academy's Understanding of American Religious Life. <laughs> um, a C. I say that because, um, you know, when I told some of my um, professors at Stanford that I was going to study uh, religion and write a dissertation about religion and conservative Christians and academic success, they looked at me and said, really, you may want to wait until after you get tenure. Or they said, that's, you're like jumping up the wrong tree. That's just a proxy for social class. You're not going to find anything. Um, I think that people, especially in more selective institutions, professors in more um, selective institutions, I admire them tremendously. I also think that they're not willing to take religion seriously. Uh, and I think that has serious consequences for the kinds of policies we have created, for the kinds of interventions we have created. Um, for example, right, when we think about how people choose colleges from an economist point of view, we tend to think of the college choice process as like, Kids will maximize, right? We'll think about it from this cost-benefit ratio, and we're not thinking about it from the social dimension. And when you think about it from the religious dimension, you see that the way kids choose college is not about just the cost-benefit, but also the social sort of milieu in which they're living in. And when you look at it that way, college choice, you can give somebody as much information about Stanford as possible. They're never going to go because it's far away from home, and that's not how they make those college choices. So I think the academy needs to take religion more seriously, absolutely. Publicly funded school choice programs that allow students to attend religious schools. Incomplete. I say that because I don't have enough knowledge of the issue to weigh in. Fair enough. But to not pull punches, the trajectory of evangelical Christianity in America. This one's going to get me in trouble. A D. So the reason uh, I give it a D is because I have... Um, significant, significant disagreement with evangelicals on social and political issues, um, on a slew of issues, including reproductive rights uh, and lots of other things. The reason I didn't give them an F is because I think that there, as I show in my book, some uh, valuable things that religious kids are learning and there's something to be learned from that. But it, on average, I think the state of evangelical Christianity from a social and political level is not going in a good direction at all. Fair enough. So your book looks at the impact of religion and religious uh, engagement on academic achievement. What if we flip that on its head? How would you grade the impact of academic achievement on religious devotion? I'd give that one an incomplete because I think there's not... 
uh, a lot of data that I can think of that helps me give a more informed answer for that. I mean, I don't think it is the job at all of educational institutions to promote any sort of religious devotion or religious belief. I will say that um, higher education institutions, and I recently wrote about this um, in an article for Tulane called Higher, the future of higher education needs to embrace religion. And what I mean by that is I think professors, the academy needs to take religion more seriously as a way in which students organize their lives and not be as dismissive of it. Look, I think we're at this place where there's a huge rift in public opinion of higher education and of professors amongst the political right. Support for higher education and respect and admiration of professors is incredibly low. Uh, and I think part of that has to do with the way religion is treated in the academy. I think we are um, the academy is going to do itself a disservice if it continues to constantly um, be dismissive of, of religion if we want higher education to thrive. Yeah, I mean, when your favorables are below Congress's, you need to start thinking about what's going on, right? And uh, a lot of uni- higher education polls show that... Uh, Indeed, just like you say, it's uh, there's a lack of trust among uh, particularly conservatives. Yeah, and I'll also add one thing actually to this point about you know there's um this notion, and some research has pointed to this that when people go to college, when young people go to college, they become less religious, and that leads people to think like, oh, college is bad for religion, right? If you want your kids to stay religious, don't send them to college. I'm actually working on a paper right now. Uh, that doesn't show that story to be the case. What happens is that when people go to college, they end up staying just as sort of um, their level of belief um, stays just as high. But what they do lose confidence in is the institution of religion. And the reason that happens is commonly over social and political issues. So for the the students um, in the National Study of Youth and Religion, Many of them stopped attending church when they went to college, even though they were avid churchgoers in adolescence. The reason isn't because they stopped believing in God or stopped thinking that religion was important. It was because they couldn't agree with their church and they couldn't get on board with their um, church's policies around same-sex marriage. And it was this particular political issue for kids going to college in the sort of mid-2010 era that had this fallout effect. So we need to be thinking not as like, what is why is um, higher education bad for religion? But what's the social and political nature of what's happening when kids are going to college that allows them uh, or leads them to make those kinds of choices? All right, Alana, thanks for doing the inaugural graded section. I hope I wasn't too tough on you. No, that was fun. All right. Okay, a few more questions. Look, recently there's been sort of conversation about boys in this country. Boys perform less well academically. Uh, They attend college and complete college at lower rates than than girls. Some have suggested that we've problematized masculinity and masculine virtues. Some people might call this political bluster, but there appears to be some truth into it. Now, it seems that it could be the case that in particular, secularization hurts boys more than it hurts girls. So you tell me, are the boys all right? The boys are not all right. Uh, In my study, one of the things that was most fascinating to watch unfold was the, um, you know, what Case and Deaton have called the depths of despair. Uh, So the opioid crisis in working class communities was really unfolding as these boys in the National Study of 
youth and religion was as their lives were playing out and as they were in their formative years. And there were several boys who talked about, you know, they said, my father got in a car accident and he was in a lot of pain and his doctor prescribed him meds and now he's really addicted. And then he overdosed. And there was just story after story. And what was interesting is that these stories were much more prevalent amongst boys. I think this is because right? Father figures play a particular kind of role in the lives of adolescent boys that they wouldn't play in the lives of adolescent girls. And watching their their sort of fathers fall into the state of despair, commit suicide is particularly hard. And it's not just hitting individual kids, right? It's hitting entire communities. And here's the thing, despair doesn't die, right? We tend to think of despair as something that happens in adulthood, but it doesn't. It's transmitted intergenerationally. And so one of the reasons I think boys are really struggling is they are just experiencing a lack of hope, uh, a lack of purpose in their lives. I'm not sure if secular how much secularization is affecting them, but what it, that, but there's nothing there that's sort of buffering them against despair. And what I do find, and this is where that New York Times article uh, really speaks to this, is that religion buffers kids who are experiencing um, despair from the sort of calamities of despair, right? It gives them purpose. It gives them hope. Um, One kid in my book says, you know, God is that feather pillow that I fall back on when I feel hopeless. For kids who don't have a lot going in their lives, religion can offer them something to organize their lives and something that gives them meaning. And when kids feel like they have meaning and purpose, it helps them to do better academically. Okay, so we've been consistently talking, and in your book, you spend most of the time talking about abiders and how they do better academically. And then you take this sharp turn and start talking that atheists do very well, too. Explain that to listeners, because, wow, that is not what you expect towards the end of this work focused on not just Christians, but, uh, you know, abiders who are Christians. Yes. So this chapter stemmed from a question that I grappled with for many years as I was doing this research, because a lot of my colleagues who themselves would identify as agnostic or atheist said to me, and they were like faculty at elite institutions, I don't see myself in your story. If these religious kids are doing so well, and I don't believe in God, like, where am I in the story? Why did I do so well? And so I spent a long time grappling with this question and reading the interviews of kids who were um, atheists. And here's what I found. First of all, atheists' grades are not statistically different from abiders. And so we have to think about who are the kinds of kids who are identifying as atheists or who were saying that they don't believe in God in 2003. 2003 was a time in American history when belief in God was very high. In fact, only 3% of adults were willing to go on record to say, I don't believe in God. And in my data, only 3% of teenagers were willing to say they don't believe in God. So you have to think about who's the kind of kid who's willing to go so far against the social grain, the social norm. It is the kind of kid, as I, as I um, argue in the book, that is already thinking outside the box and is already asking big kinds of questions. They are the kinds of kids who are also reading Nietzsche and reading Plato and kids who are not interested in the typical kinds of things that teenagers are talking about. And so the reason that I argue atheists do well is because they are intrinsically motivated to pursue knowledge. They, are, they have a level of autonomy, intellectual curiosity 
that they may not be particularly well behaved, but they're actually very intelligent and very intellectually curious. And that is one way to do well in school. The abiders, on the other hand, right, if the atheists are doing well because they're intrinsically motivated, the abiders are doing well because they are extrinsically motivated, extrinsically motivated to please God. And they do so by behaving in this conscientious and cooperative way. Those are two different ways to do well academically. And so this is interesting because you can use the same sort of terms, but it sounds to me like what you're saying is, yeah, but we're actually capturing some different things. So it is not that these are antipodes, but they just operate differently. Whereas the abiders have social supports and they have these motivations to do things. When you capture atheists, particularly in 2003, Mm -hmm. capturing a subset of students who have particular attributes not because of necessarily social circles, but because of a different set of identifiers. Right. And the, the sample size of atheists is small. I had, you know, 90 in the survey and, you know, I can't remember, but a, a small hand, a, a handful in the interviews. So this warrants more study. But you are right in that it is not because they don't believe in God that they are doing well. It is because the kinds of kids who don't believe in God in 2003 also have these other kinds of traits and dispositions. They also tend to come from from more affluent and uh, socioeconomically advantaged families, which you try to capture, you know, with controls in the survey data. But it's an important distinction amongst them. I would say that atheists today probably look different, right? It's no longer as unpopular to say you're an atheist. So I'm not sure we should expect that atheists would fare as well now as they did back then. So you are a professor of Jewish studies, so we shouldn't just talk about atheists uh, or, or Christians. So you've done some more recent work looking at professional outcomes of Jewish girls. And, uh, you know, can you just give us a, a quick thumbnail on that? And also the distinction between outcomes of Jewish girls and Jewish boys, because if I'm getting this right, they run in sort of a different pattern to the findings for abiders. Yes. So the work you're referring to um, is a study that just came out in the American Sociological Review, um, which is a study that finds that girls raised by at least one Jewish parent go on to complete college at higher rates and end up at more selective colleges compared to girls who grow up in non-Jewish families from comparable social origins. Right. So here, this is a really important distinction because There's been lots of data and people for a while have talked about the fact that Jews are amongst the most educationally successful groups in America. And most people say, oh, well, that's because they tend to be more middle upper class. And so if you were just to control for um, socioeconomic status, that effect would probably go away. In fact, that effect does not go away. And so there's something unexplained about what's happening with Jews that was the motivation for the study. And also, there's this, most people will say, oh, Jews do well because they just value education. As a sociologist, I have a very big problem with that kind of explanation because it assumes that there's something about Jews and Asian Americans, right? Because we make the same claims about Asian Americans, that there's something inherent in Jewishness that, that makes Jewish kids do well in school, right? Which also then means that if kids who are Black or Hispanic are not doing well in school, that there's something that, that they're just not simply valuing education, right? That they have a cultural deficiency as opposed to Jews have this cultural trait that have 
help them figure out how to do sort of culture the right way and be educationally successful? And why can't we just get, you know, underrepresented minorities to value education? The answer is not that simple, right? You can value education all you want, but there's like a whole host of structural and psychological factors that make your aspirations come to fruition or not. The goal of this paper is to illustrate how culture and structural factors and social psychological factors come together to influence educational trajectories. In particular, what we show with the case of Jewish girls is that religious subcultures are, because religion is highly gendered, when we think about disparities in educational attainment, when we think about vertical and horizontal stratification in higher education, we tend to think of just the gender divide or just the class divide. And what we advocate for in this paper and hope that people take away from this is that religious subcultures, because of their gendered notions, also are implicated in stratification. The fact that Jewish girls are doing so well is partly the result of the fact that Judaism, outside of ultra-Orthodoxy, which we don't take up in this study, um, is a very gender egalitarianism, ethno-religious group. Girls grow up in Jewish homes being taught that they can be all the things that boys can be. They can make their mark in society by being prominent career women, by being lawyers, and it's okay to be in the spotlight. Those aren't necessarily the messages that girls in conservative Protestant homes um, are getting. And so the kinds of self-concepts that Jewish uh, girls in Jewish homes are getting compared to um, girls in non-Jewish homes are very different. And the reason their educational outcomes vary is because they're basically, to make their self-concept sort of manifest itself, they they organize their educational careers in very different ways. So to zoom out here at the end, Alana, you've got a lot, a lot here, and there's, there's just so much to cover in God's grades and graduation. But, you know, when you want to think about your work and what people should take away from it, particularly as it relates to education, you know, what's the the thumbnail uh, of what you hope might shift in the way people think about schools and religion? Mm -hmm. So the first thing I would say is we, uh, many people think that we have the separation of church and state. And so religion doesn't really matter in our K-12 schools because it's not technically supposed to be in there. And what I want people to understand is that the kinds of habits, dispositions, mindsets that you learn when you grow up religious don't just stop at the public school door. And the reason that public schools are, right, religion doesn't necessarily matter for how kids do on the soccer field or how they do in drama class, but there's something um, sticky about the school environment because there is a synergistic relationship between the institution of religion and the institution of schooling. One of the things I talk about in my book is about the religious origins, religious roots of our public schools, right? Most people don't know that our public schools, which were originally called the common schools, were started as places where people could learn to be literate so they could learn to read the Bible. And in fact, we have been reading the King James Bible in public schools up until like the 1960s. And so a lot of people don't see these institutions as having any sort of relationship. After reading my book, I want people to be cognizant of the how the grammar or the structure of our public schools has come to align and be complementary to the institution of religion in ways that we maybe haven't thought about before. Two, I want people to be thinking about, even though my book shows that these intensely religious kids get better grades and have better education outcomes, 
I actually want people to think about what that means. That's not necessarily a good thing because it means that we are rewarding a particular set of dispositions that maybe isn't what we want to be rewarding. If we want to be rewarding creativity and critical thinking, I'm not sure that these um, abiders would be faring so well. So when parents ask me like, oh, does that mean I should take my kid to church? Does that mean I should make my kid more religious? I ask themselves, well, it depends. What are the dispositions that you want to teach your children? Those may not be the dispositions that are uh, sort of being taught in churches. And so I want people to be more critical about uh, and thoughtful about what religion offers as opposed to just asking like, is religion good or bad for you? Um, And then three, I wrote this book. You know, this is a time where we have profound polarization in America along political lines. I think religion is at the root of a lot of it, or at least understanding religion can help us understand and empathize with the people whom we disagree with profoundly. And my book, I hope, helps people scale the empathy wall a little bit to see what it's like to walk in the shoes of kids who are raised with these really intense religious commitments and why they don't just shed those religious commitments um, when they grow up. Alana Horwitz, thanks for coming on the report card to talk about your work. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, Ilana Horwitz. We'll include a link to God, grades, and graduation, and some of the other work referenced in the episode in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. And while you're there, take an extra minute and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.